so many people were executed that this was part of a cultural belief system. So really to understand the past, you need to understand well, how could people who were intelligent, educated people believe something that we now see as ludicrous? And I found that a really interesting way into the minds of the past. Welcome to UQ Changemakers, a podcast series where we interview some of the most influential and inspiring members of the UQ community. My name is Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. In this spellbinding episode, we delve into the dark arts with UQ's witchcraft and ghost expert, Dr. Charlotte Rose Miller. Charlotte's research interests lie in supernatural belief and gender topics, and she is the author of Witchcraft, the Devil and Emotions in Early Modern England. Charlotte, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we'll go back in history. Can you explain the role of witches in our past. Sure. Um, So a lot of people think of witchcraft as a medieval kind of thing. You know, whenever we talk about something that's awful or torturous, we say it's really medieval, it's from the Dark Ages. But actually witchcraft really... It, it has the, the most strong history in the 16th and 17th centuries, so after the medieval period. I mean, it's really around that time that witchcraft became a crime uh, that was enforced by state law, not church law. Um, so between about... 1450 and 1700, about 50,000 men and women were executed for witchcraft. Uh, And those people were not witches, they didn't identify as witches, but they were accused of basically being part of this kind of anti-Christian sect that people believed existed and uh, accused of working with the devil, basically, as ludicrous as that sounds. But they were executed for this crime in a lot of cases. So what sort of crimes are we talking about? Mm. Were they everyday things that they just pointed the finger and Mm. used it as an excuse? Sometimes. So the sort of typical witch um, is usually female, although there are male witches. They're usually quite old, um, particularly, so they're over 60 or even over 80, which particularly in that period is really old. They're often poor and sometimes widowed, so they're not protected anymore. So they're sort of on the fringes of society in a way. Um, And often accusations can, um, they usually happen at a small village level and they can fester for years. So people can dislike someone for say 30 years. And then there's usually something like maybe a famine happens or some bad thing happens in the community. And people want something to blame. They want to understand why something has gone wrong. And then it's very easy to sort of think, well, that person over there, she seems suspicious. Maybe she's the one who caused this. Um, So on one level, on the sort of village level, witches are accused of doing things that are really quite mundane. So things like um, killing animals or hurting children or making men impotent as well is another one. Um, And then on the bigger kind of level, uh, witches were accused of working with the devil and even meeting with the devil to sort of get demonic power to do those things like kill cows. You said there were some men Mm. accused of being witches as well, Mm. but it mostly seems to be a a women thing. Why is that? Yeah, so I think that's a... um It's partly truth and partly myth. It's something we definitely think today. We think of witches as women. Um, Firstly, uh, when you were talking about male or female witches in the past, they're both called witches. There aren't any wizards or warlocks. They're all witches. Um, I think that, we'll say in England, uh, 90% of accused witches were women and 10% were male. So what historians are really trying to work out at the moment, and we're still not sure, is why some men were accused when there's so few numbers. So some people have argued that these were men who were effeminate and um, different in that way. But others have argued, I think quite convincingly, that 
both male and female witches are people who don't do what's expected of them gender-wise. So whether for men that's being effeminate or actually being sort of hyper-aggressively masculine, they're both things they're not meant to be doing and they're sort of outside a norm. So witches, I think, are often people who are outside of a, a normal stand of behaviour and therefore become sort of suspicious. But then there's other countries like in Scandinavia where there are more male witches um, and that's often associated with a more learned, educated style of magic, I suppose. Mm. Were there actual witch trials? We hear about this mentioned Mm. in TVs and Mm. and movies. And have you had the opportunity to read some of the transcripts from these trials? Absolutely. So there were definitely witch trials. Um, And it depends what country you're in. And I'm talking about Europe here. That's my particular area. In, uh, say, England, once again, my particular area, about 50% of people who were brought to trial were found guilty um, and executed, but about 50% got off. Um, So the trials, it depends what country you're in. In some countries, um, it's a sort of top-down process, but in others, it's more that people accuse their neighbours and then convince someone to trial them. Um, So we have transcripts from those trial records, which are fascinating to read. So we have... um, verbatim testimony from the witches and the neighbours and it's also a really good way of hearing women's voices in history so we often don't have a lot of historical writing from women but here we do have their words recorded. Um, There's also a lot of um, printed pamphlets about witches so these are kind of like early newspapers where someone would buy the latest pamphlet, it would be very cheap, and they could read or have read to them the latest case of witchcraft that actually happened and it would sort of be couched in this moral term that this woman or this man um, was not a virtuous Christian. They let their greed and their desire for revenge take over. They turned to the devil, they became a witch, and now they've been executed. So this is what could happen to you if you're not good, basically. So it's sort of entertainment and moralising at the same time. Was it some kind of way of perhaps trying to keep those um, outsiders of society in line? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think that it's tempting to say that, but it's slightly too um, simplistic, simply because, for instance, some people have argued that witch hunting is woman hunting. Um, And we can't really say that because even though, say, in England, most uh, people accused of witchcraft were women, most of the people doing the accusing were also women. And so it's not a sort of men attacking women thing. A lot of witchcraft happens in a very female sphere. So women, of course, in the 16th and 17th century are very much in the home and they're very much in charge of uh, food and child rearing. And often witchcraft acts are about somebody has poisoned my bread or my beer that I'm trying to make or they've killed my child. And it's sort of this, it's really quite contained in that female sphere for a lot of the time, which is why it's more complicated than sort of powerful men attacking women, I suppose. And so as a result, did we see the things we accused witches of doing change as society changed? Mm, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I, I ex- During my um, PhD and my subsequent book, I expected to see a lot of change over time from sort of the 16th century to even the early 18th century. But actually the crimes that uh, witches were accused of stayed remarkably the same. So uh, one of the most typical ways we see witchcraft accusations play out is uh, say I'm an old woman and I come begging to your door asking for bread, which is quite a common thing to do. Um, And I ask for bread and you say no. And as I go away, I curse under my breath, which is something we all do today all the time. And the person who's rejected me 
um, here's me curse. And the next day her cow drops dead because cows do drop dead. And you think, well, I'm feeling guilty because I didn't give that woman any bread and I really should have, but she cursed my cow, so she's a witch. And this is the most common way, particularly in England, that these um, accusations get started from these kind of neighbourly disputes. Um, And as people have argued that really witchcraft could only occur in small communities where everyone knows each other because it's built on these tensions that sort of eventually bubble up and overhaul. And that's definitely what we see in England in the 16th and 17th centuries. There's very, very few witchcraft accusations in London. It's really in much smaller centres. Um, I always think of Salem because mm. I suppose, you know, bewitched and all that sort of stuff. But was England actually a higher level of um, accusations of witches and witchcraft? Sure. So England's actually um, quite a small example within Europe. So basically um, in Europe, the most Witchcraft is sort of the strongest in the German-speaking areas of Europe, so the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, It's also quite high in parts of France. Uh, Scotland is relatively high. Switzerland, surprisingly. Um, England's quite low. England has about 1,000... Uh, accusations and 500 executions. Um, But they still, that doesn't mean that witchcraft isn't a concern. It's really more that the English judicial system is far more cautious than a lot of other ones, so it's actually harder to get prosecutions across. Um, On Salem, though, so Salem happens in the 1690s, and it's really at the end of the witchcraft era, so it's really settled down in a lot of Europe. And so Salem is quite late, but it's what we still think of. And Salem really happens because... Uh, to be very simplistic about it, it's a moment of turmoil. Um, Salem doesn't have a charter, so they can't properly um, punish people or or the, the legal system isn't working, basically. Um, and there's also a lot of attacks uh, by Native Americans, so there's a really high level of stress. And that's where these witchcraft accusations come out, in those moments of turmoil. It's interesting that you talk about the trials and the, um, the system, the judicial system, mm. because... It's portrayed in the movies as this mob mm. that go and grab some little old lady mm. and, and carry her away. Mm. So it wasn't like that at all. It does happen. Like It absolutely does happen. Um, but generally it is something that happens within a court system. Uh, so in England it happens in the Assizes courts, which come around four times a year. So you're sort of held until you can get to one of those courts. But it's, it's a travelling court that comes and visits your little place. Um, and so... That's what happens in the English system, so it is sort of goes through those courts. People always think of the Inquisition with witchcraft. I think Monty Python is to blame for this <laughs> um, in Spain. And so. But uh, really the Inquisition actually keeps a bit of a cap because it is in control. And so really the point where we see accusations get out of control are in places like Salem where there isn't a proper legislative thing in place or in England during the English Civil War where there's really no control at all. And so actually the, the system controls rather than encourages. It's, it's quite funny, yeah. We were talking a, a little bit earlier about those myths that um, we all have when mm. it comes to witches. What are some of the more common ones? Well, I guess definitely that witches are women. Um, but I think the one that is quite pervasive is that uh, people in the past identified as witches, um, which is one that's difficult because people in the past really didn't. I mean, the closest you get to being a witch in the 16th and 17th centuries is you might identify as what's called a cunning man or a cunning woman or like a wise woman or a wise man. So it's somebody that people would go and visit when they're sick. And um, they may often people will see a doctor 
and a priest and a cunning man. They'll sort of see those different types of people. And they might offer some kind of herbal remedy or sometimes a charm. Um, and so that's the closest you get to that kind of witchy magic stuff. Um, but those people would still have identified as Christians, not as some sort of anti-heretical devil-worshipping person. Um, and so I think that that's a big difference, that people seem to think that this was a group of people that were persecuted for their beliefs, and that's really not the case. So where did those images that we're used to seeing come into the timeline mm. of, you know, the woman with the crooked nose yeah. and the, yeah. the wart or um, riding a broomstick? Yeah, so in terms of the woman with the crooked nose and the wart, I think that comes from the the fact that most accused witches were aged elderly women. And if you're an old person in the 16th, 17th century, you're going to have quite a lot of noticeable scars and you're going to be kind of disfigured in some ways. Uh, Also... um, uh, people used to, in England, search the body of the witch for marks um, of witchcraft. Uh, we haven't talked about familiar spirits, which I'd, I'd like to talk about, but familiar spirits, a lot of people have heard of them. They're basically, if you think of um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch with the little cat called Salem or Harry Potter with the owl, um, you know, basically they're a little animal that sort of is meant to help the witch. But what we've forgotten is that Actually, they were believed to be devils in animal form. Um, And so the reason that in England people were actually physically searched is they were searched for a mark on their body that their little animal was believed to suck blood from as part of the pact. So it's a whole different... I mean, you think of this cute little cat, but it had a very different representation at the time. Mm. So that's. I think the, the marks come from that idea of the witch's body being kind of implicated in the witchcraft. You talk about often the witches being betrayed as an older woman and, and that they were the most frequently accused, but we also see a lot of historical drawings and paintings and things that have sort of a young, mm. almost sexy witch. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, so there's definitely some great examples by people like Jura and Boltangrian, quite big painters, um, Jura particularly, where the witches are portrayed, as you say, often naked, often in this very kind of voluptuous, sexy kind of way. Um, And that's sort of the flip side of the ugly witch. And those paintings are really interesting because what they're doing, so in those paintings, often the the naked woman is looking at you and making really direct eye contact with you. And there's this real seductiveness about it. And I think this comes down to the idea that witches and the devil are going to try and seduce you. So it's this whole idea, it's a very different way of looking at the world, that God and the devil are real things. And we have to get into that mindscape to understand it. And so God has his followers, but the devil is trying to recruit followers, and that's what witches are. And so there's this idea that the devil takes like nice little shapes, like the little cat, to try and seduce you, but also that these women are trying to seduce you away from Christ into the devil's clutches. So there's this kind of dangerous sexuality. And also there's this idea that these women are um, are being deviant sexually as well. Uh, they often have flowing hair, which is always a symbol of lust and a lo- lack of control. Um, and so really it's sort of this, this dangerous, yeah, unfettered woman. It's interesting that you talk about the sexuality of witches mm. because a lot of people tend to argue that um, witchcraft and sexuality go hand in hand and that perhaps these trials were part of um, the patriarchy and trying to keep women down. But that hasn't been your finding. Is that correct? No, I think that's um, it's definitely something people used to argue, particularly um 
in the 1990s, there were quite a lot of works published on the idea of sort of the, the patriarchy oppressing women, and that's what witchcraft was, the, the witch hunting as woman hunting. Um, and I think that scholarship came from a place where really before sort of the 70s and 80s, no one had looked at the gender aspect of witchcraft, even though they were all women, gender history wasn't really a, a way in which we looked at things. So it was kind of a correct that we needed to take the fact that so many women were accused really seriously and try and understand what that meant. Um, but since the 1990s, there's been a lot more published on how really a lot of women were accused by other women. and It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, so I think in terms of sexuality, there was definitely... Um, Definitely women had to be controlled in their sexuality. So did men, but women had to more so. Um, and there's this definite idea that if women are unmarried or widowed, they're sort of out of... They're not, and they're not wives and mothers, and that's really what women are meant to do in this period. And that's where a lot of anxiety towards these people come from. Um, so one of the... Um, anxieties we see uh, a lot of is women accusing other women of witchcraft uh, because of sort of rivalries around children. So for instance, when a woman um, went into labor, she had her female friends and neighbors with her. Um, and there was there are cases where someone didn't invite a particular female neighbor to the birth and then their child died because unfortunately children did die more often in that period. And so that woman blames the woman she didn't invite and decides she's a witch and has hurt her child. So there's definitely idea that this woman doesn't have her own children so she's attacking mine or she's not married so she's attacking my family. So the domesticity I think is really important. Uh, also with the um, familiars I mentioned before, sucking the blood at witches' bodies, they actually, um, those marks are often in really sexualized places on a woman's, a witch's body. Um, we think now actually quite a lot of them were probably hemorrhoids and marks like that, that were actually there, um, but they, I mean, they did know what hemorrhoids were, but they interpreted in them in this demonic way. So this idea that the witch's body is sexualized is absolutely there. And you see it in the paintings you've described. Also, um, there was a belief that witches went to the Sabbath with the devil. So I think we've all probably heard of the Sabbath, but a sort of nighttime meeting where witches are believed to meet the devil. Obviously, this never happened, but people believed that it did. And at those meetings, um, people believed that witches had orgies with the devil. So there really is this kind of deviant sexuality attached to, to witches and to women's bodies. So what, what was the catalyst to see the end of this period? What mm. changed? It's such a big question. It's one we're debating a lot. I think one thing that happened is that it wasn't that people stopped believing in witchcraft necessarily. Some people did, particularly educated people, started to question it more. But the big move was really that it wasn't that people thought they couldn't uh, that it didn't exist, but that they couldn't prove it. So in, in the English case, a lot of magistrates stopped trying witchcraft cases because they thought, well, how can we possibly prove this person is a witch? And so they didn't say that they couldn't be, but that, yeah, it was not legally provable. Particularly once you get rid of torture as well, you get rid of a lot of confessions in Europe. There were never... There, weren't re there wasn't really torture in England, but in most of Europe there was, and the confession was really seen as proof. So once you get rid of the confession, it becomes increasingly hard to prove. Uh, so, for instance, in England, the law against witches was repealed in 1735, um, but the last witchcraft accusation was... Uh, sorry, execution was 50 years earlier. So really the law sort of... Um, it had already changed before the law was changed. So I think it's really a sort of idea that we need more evidence and that we can't prove this uh, rather than a, a changing belief. And belief continues and then waters down as well. Does any country still actually have um, a law against witchcraft? Yeah, so uh, I'm not an expert in modern witchcraft, but I do know that 
in um, parts of Asia, say in Cambodia and in Papua New Guinea, they have a lot of issues with witchcraft and witch hunting. And in some countries, people think, well, now there's no law, I have to take the law into my own hands. So you have a lot of mob killings of witches in Papua New Guinea and Cambodia. Um, and I believe in Saudi Arabia, they're witch hunts, but I'm not sure. But yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely an issue. People, uh, children are killed as under suspicion of witchcraft in parts of Asia. Um, yeah. And that's always, it's the same kind of thing where people are looking for an explanation for something that they don't understand. Um, and it might seem quite simple that, say, if someone dies, we can say, well, they had cancer, that's why they died. And people will sometimes accept that they had cancer, but the, their question will be, well, who gave them cancer? And that's where the witchcraft comes in. What about the modern witches? How do you feel about that, the portrayal of we've got Samantha and, from Bewitched mm-hmm. and um, even Harry Potter has mm-hmm. changed that um, perception? Mm. Yeah, I, I love all that stuff. I loved Harry Potter as a, as a child and growing up. Um, I, I found out it was actually banned in places in America, Harry Potter, because they thought it was demonic, which I found really strange. Um, I think that... I think there's sort of two things. There's witchcraft in popular culture, which really seems to be having a resurgence. There seem to be so many witches around. Um, Charmed was around when I was a teenager. That Everyone was obsessed with it. And it really portrays the sort of strong female witches, which is great. Um, and they've definitely gone back to the sexy kind of witches there. And then, of course, there's... Um, people who today identify as witches as well, which is quite separate. Um, but I think in terms of the, the fictional depiction of witchcraft, it's really interesting the bits that come through. So Harry Potter, they do seem to have the animals, but the animals definitely aren't the devil. Um, and uh, for instance, uh, Philip Pullman's um, trilogy, they have little animals that are called demons, but then there's no witchcraft. So these sort of things filter through a little bit, which is interesting. And we see a really strong link now between uh, people that identify as witches and feminists as mm, well. Mm. Um, do you think there's a reason for that? Uh, that the feminist stuff has been really interesting lately politically. So say with Julia Gillard and Hillary Clinton, both of them were called witches in the news. And I found that a really interesting association that we still... Firstly, only female politicians are called witches. No male politicians are. And calling a woman a witch seems to really imply that she's old and somehow dried up and kind of past it, I think. It's this really nasty insult. And it's funny that we still have that at the back of our mind. But then at the same time, we have all these kind of powerful witches on TV. But maybe that's why it's happening, that people don't like the kind of powerful feminine witch they're turning it around and attacking people. Here's a question. How did you ever get interested in this topic? Uh, it's a fun, That's a hard question because I always just think it's fundamentally interesting. So, um, But I suppose I really was into... I was always into stories about witches and fantasy things when I was little and I was very into Harry Potter and I was into all things like that. And then I got to uni and there was a subject called witches and witch hunting in European societies at Melbourne Uni. But there's one at UQ as well. And it was doing that subject that made me realise it was a historical topic that so many people were executed, that this was part of a cultural belief system. So really to understand the past, you need to understand well, how could people who were intelligent, educated people believe something that we now see as ludicrous? And I found that a really interesting way into the minds of the past. Um, and so I really just went from from there. I did um, a PhD with the person who taught that subject. And yeah, but I, I just, I always think it's far more interesting to be able to learn about how a goat appeared to someone and gave them a knife and disappeared and then 
then they were accused based on the ghost testimony. I mean, it's just strange, as opposed to saying, I study the economic crisis of 19... I mean, it's just far more interesting, far more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I was interested that you had written about nightmares, mm. and I'm a person that gets sleep paralysis. Oh, so really? I find it fascinating. Mm. So is that, for you, studying nightmares, is that kind of where the path crossed between ghosts and witches because people see both. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So the nightmare article for me was a little stepping stone, I suppose, because I was looking at um, some witchcraft cases where witches seem to be describing the nightmare, so the sort of sleep paralysis nightmare where you wake up and they thought a devil, well, you don't wake up, you think you're awake, um, and there's they saw devils on their chests and that I sort of was talking about how this is part of a process of demonic temptation that these witches feel the devil is appearing to them. Apparently today it's far more common to see UFOs appearing in sleep paralysis. So it really reflects what we fear as a society and the devil at that time is absolutely terrifying. Um, and then I think I sort of I got interested in the ghost stuff because a lot of the ghosts intersect with demons actually in a way that we don't think of today but a lot of ghost sightings in the 16th and 17th century often are you don't know if it's a ghost or a devil and so I guess that's where I sort of followed my nose to. It's interesting to me when I was younger I used to see a witch Mm. with my sleep paralysis and when I was older I saw a robber so obviously my fears changed Mm. to I'm much more scared of a guy with a knife Mm. than an old lady hanging out in my room that's fine they can do that. <laughs> so you've looked at early ghost sightings. That's the area you've focused on. Very recently, yeah. So it's definitely a new thing for me. Mm. And what have you found? So far. Um, well, what I'm finding really interesting so far is I'm mainly looking at the 17th century in England. And so when I talk about ghost sight, ghost sightings is a good way to say it, actually, because if I say ghost stories, people assume they're meant to be fictional. But these are actually meant to be real sightings that people have seen. Um, so it's sort of the start of the 17th century a lot of people see things that are more like demonic animals or more sort of blurry between is it a devil is it a ghost what what is it a lot of black dogs appear um, and sometimes they're familiar spirits or sometimes they're ghosts but then once we get to sort of the mid 17th century ghosts start becoming far more like we think of them so humans basically and that they're believed to be the dead souls of actual people who have existed. But I think what I find really interesting is that basically because I'm looking at England, England in the 17th century is Protestant um, and it used to be Catholic. And basically in Protestant England, ghosts shouldn't exist because ghosts are the souls of people who've come back from the dead. That shouldn't exist because Protestantism gets rid of the idea of purgatory. So ghosts really shouldn't be coming from anywhere. So what a lot of Protestant reformers and priests and preachers try and argue is if you see a ghost it's actually the devil disguising himself as a ghost to trick you so it's all about the devil trying to trick you Um, but what I'm finding is that people really don't subscribe to that view if they see what they think is the ghost of their mother they don't think well that's a demon they want to think it's their mother and so there's a lot of tension between is it a ghost is it a devil and you get a lot of cases where someone believes it is the ghost of their mother but they seem to have become like a demon mother and it's it's really really strange (laughs) So why do people want to see ghosts or what historically have you found? Well, I think uh, this is a hard question because we still, Australians still believe in ghosts in huge amounts. I think it's about 35% of people admit to believing in ghosts, which means that probably more do and just don't want to actually admit it. And I think most people 
want to believe. Um, so I teach a course here called History of the Supernatural and we look at lots of different supernatural creatures, sort of zombies and vampires and ghosts and demons. And the only thing people believe in is ghosts. They think everything else is ridiculous, but the ghosts are fine. And I find that really fascinating. And I think it's because we do want to believe that for our own sakes, there's something after we die. No one wants to think they just vanish. And also that that our loved ones are still around. But a lot of people, I mean, I think in the past, people were that was part of a religious belief, whereas now a lot of people who aren't religious still believe in ghosts. Um, so I think there is that. Today there's the, that desire to believe in something else. But also people in the past, a lot of them actually, so I expected to find that they really wanted to see these ghosts, but they really don't. They're really <laughs> scared. <laughs> They're really, the ghost appears and people are terrified and we have sort of bodily descriptions of people crying. <laughs> Um, there's one where somebody apparently miscarried because they saw a ghost. They just they don't want to see them at all. So I have to rethink how I'm, um, yeah, how I'm thinking about that. Have you, in your studies on ghosts, found that there's a certain type of person that sees them? Because we often hear about mm. babies being able to see ghosts, yeah, or yeah. Um, it seems to be women that tend to report it a little bit more than men. Mm. Is that what you found? Well, I'm still in the early stages of the research, so I can't really make any broad conclusions. But so far, no. Um, I think the main thing is that people, that the ghosts are very localised. So people will see, um, people who lived like, so they're in London, say, but it's in a very small sort of radius, maybe three streets, and a woman will come back and everyone knows that woman and multiple people will see her. And then often when the person or the ghost comes back, something physical happens as sort of proof. So often they'll say there's buried treasure under those floorboards and then they'll dig it up and there is buried treasure. So everyone displays the treasure and everyone comes and looks at it to prove that the ghost is back. And that's all sort of localised to this little area. So I think there's a lot there about communities sort of sort of healing as well through the ghost. So there was one um, woman who saw a ghost who, uh, the ghost was uh, a former midwife who died three months before. And she said that there were baby twins buried under the fireplace. And they dug up the fireplace and they found the bones of babies under the fireplace. And then everyone came and looked at the bones, which seems really morbid to us. But I think it was also part of a sort of healing process that this the ghosts always have a purpose. They always come back to do something. So there's never a ghost that just sort of wanders around, not really doing anything. They always have a message or something that needs to be done. And they can get quite aggressive if you don't do what they want. They start throwing things and one poor person kept getting pulled out of bed all the time <laughs> by the toe. Um, and then sometimes they go and talk to um, ministers and they say, this ghost is tormenting me. And finally, the ministers actually say, well, you should do what the ghost says because the ghost clearly wants something. So the ghost sort of has this healing role. It's, it's this purpose, which I find really interesting. So it's sort of less that similar people see the ghost, but that the ghosts themselves seem to have really similar reasons for appearing. I was interested to learn, and I know you've only looked at English history mm. so far with ghosts, but it seems that different countries have different concepts of ghosts. So is it something that comes out of our religious background mm. or our history? Well, I've heard it argued, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, but I have heard it argued that every culture has ghost beliefs, that they are a universal phenomenon. And they do really seem to... 
I think they really are linked to that idea of the dead and where do the dead go and everyone has belief systems about the dead. So I think that is in there but then it's across so many different religious systems or different belief systems. So I think it comes back to that idea of just wanting something after death. But there's also a lot of really malicious weird ghosts and so I guess that goes to fear of death as well. Um, but yeah it does, it's definitely that ghosts definitely aren't just sort of a Christian thing. They seem to be across many different cultures and faith traditions. So it sounds like a really fascinating set of topics between witchcraft and ghosts. Is there the next phenomenon that you're going to uh, chase as part of Mm -hmm. your research? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I I meant to always be thinking ahead. (laughs) Um, I think that devils really strike stick with me and they, they appear in so many different forms in different ways um, I think one, oh, and another thing I'm really interested in is wonders so these get caught up with ghost stories so a wonder is something like a wonder appeared in the sky and it foretelled the future so people see things like whole villages of people say they saw a lion fighting a ship in the sky and the battle went on for three hours and it's quite funny to try and think about how we understand this when there's multiple people saying they saw this lion fighting this ship so and there's uh, other things and these are sort of believed to be prodigious signs so signs that foretell the future Um, other things like um, monstrous births so people giving birth to say a cow sheep snake all the, and the pamphlets are written about these things and they say, and this shows that England is dying and we must do this. So people always politicise these kind of signs. Um, so I think those would be really fascinating to look at in a bit more detail and this kind of predictive supernatural. Sounds absolutely fascinating that you'd always have a very full lecture theatre because it's just intriguing mm, mm. for anyone. So how do people outside of the university react when you say what you're studying. I mean, I think the battle is that it is fascinating and it is really weird and strange, but it also is quite serious because it really, I think beliefs tell you a lot about a culture. What a culture believes, what it legislates against, what it tries to do tells you so much. Um, So I used to get a lot of people assuming I was a witch, which I'm not. Uh, People seem to think that that was logical. Somebody thought I was actually doing a PhD in practical witchcraft once. That was strange. Generally, people are really fascinated, though, and I think if you do ever... Sometimes I do encounter people who think it's a waste of time, and to those people I say about 50,000 people were executed, and that really changes their mind. So I think as soon as people understand that this was actually believed to be a crime, then you do get somewhere. But the other thing I think you're up against quite a lot is that a lot of people have a tendency to think that people in the past were stupid, um, which is something that happens across all areas of history that we have to argue against. And it's not that they're stupid, obviously. It's that they have different systems of belief and different ways of understanding the world that we should try and understand. And also remember that in 200 years, people are going to think that some of the things we do are really stupid. Mm. I just find that this is a topic that we could speak about for hours and um, throw so many questions at you. Mm. But unfortunately, we don't have that long. Um, But before we go, we do have a final section that we Mm -hmm. call Spare Change. This is where we get to know you a little bit better uh, with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, Are you ready? I think so. So the first question is, what is the one fact that listeners wouldn't know about you? Oh, there's so many. Uh, I think that I'm addicted to awful, awful documentaries. Like the latest one was Beard Wars. I mean, they're just, they're <laughs> awful, but really compelling. 
someone's put a spell over you. Mm. Um, <laughs> what is what is the one question that you are sick of being asked? Are you a witch? I think we all guessed that one. If you could go back in time by 10 years, what advice would you give your younger self? I would say to try not to worry so much about the future. It wouldn't work, but I would, I would try. <laughs> Who or what is your biggest influence in life? Mm, well, this is where the advice comes in because I'm always trying to get to what the next thing is all the time. So I guess I always want to learn, so that definitely drives me, but also I always want to compete against something. <laughs> so it's sort of that, that competitive edge that drives me with a lot of things, I think. And lastly, if you had to choose one piece of music that would best describe you, which song would you play? This is so hard. There are so many weird lyrics in songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know Blondie's song, um, One Way or Another? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a good song. But I like that song because, I think it describes me because she's, one way or another, she's going to get them. And I always think I'm going to get somewhere. I just have to think about how I'm going to do it. <laughs> so I'm quite determined and quite competitive and I feel that song um, represents that a bit. So it's your go-to song. Yeah, it's a, it's a good song to get pumped to. <laughs> well, that's the end of the first season of UQ Changemakers. If you want to learn more about Charlotte's research into the supernatural or revisit any episodes from season one, visit uq.edu.au forward slash changemakers, where you can also subscribe to Changemakers magazine. I'm Belinda McDougall. And I'm Katie Rowney. Our podcast was produced by Michael Jones and Jessica McGaw. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends and colleagues or leave a review on iTunes. You can also email us your episode ideas for season two at changemakers at uq.edu.au. If you want to create change, tune in next season when we interview more inspiring members of the UQ community. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.